after marking him number 170, number 170, might we give some attention in thinking to perhaps one of the briefest texts in all of the Holy Scriptures. And in fact, I thought it would be a bit interesting for us to at least give some passing consideration to the fact that those who chose to divide the Holy Word of God into the verses did provide some of the verses that are extremely brief. But yet, isn't it amazing in some instances how much wonderful truth can be expressed in such a brief text? Our Bible bowlers very recently studied John 11, verse 35, that consists of but two words, Jesus wept. That reminds us about the characteristic of the Lord's tender heart and the capability that He had to be touched by the difficulties, afflictions, and troubles that came the way of Martha and Mary. Jesus wept. But there are also many other short texts in the Bible. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. A very brief text reminding us about the need to always be prayerful, to always have the mindset of capability of bowing humbly and appropriately before our Heavenly Father in prayer. Quench not the Spirit, but four words in the closing chapter again of the book of 1 Thessalonians. All of those verses are ever so brief. They are in fact short and very to the point. And the same is true of the lesson text that Brother Colonel read in our hearing just a few moments ago. In Luke 17 verse 32 is the text for our lesson today as we challenge ourselves to remember Lot's wife. Those three little words etched in fact from the very lips of our Savior. Jesus uttered these words and no doubt as He spoke them He had in mind a very powerful lesson to remember Lot's wife. Some real things that you and I can learn from her life and apply to our life today so that we perhaps can live closer, stronger, more valiant, and more devoted to our Heavenly Father. I would ask today then that we remember Lot's wife. And as we do that, the first part of our lesson will be to rehearse the story of Lot's wife, recollecting clearly what befell her and why. And from that, we will then seek to look at some lessons that you and I can find so useful even today. And thus, remembering Lot's wife. As we do that, let's begin by revisiting the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. As we first appreciate the character of Lot, the place he had in the biblical saga of the book of Genesis, and then employing the nature of what befell he and the family. It all begins like this. You see, we quickly learn that Terah had three sons. Abram was only one of them. We well know about Abraham, but the other two were named Haran and Nahor. However, we quickly learn that Haran had a son named Lot. As the family, you see, left Ur of the Chaldees, God directly had desired that Abraham would make his way toward that place that later you and I would call Palestine. The commandment was given they ought to leave Ur of the Chaldees. And as they did that, we noticed that the family left. And as they did that, Haran had already passed away, but Lot went along with Abram and Terah and the other members of the family. And they came to a city known as Haran. After a rather brief visit there, they were thus in need of traveling south. Terah passed away, and God gave direction, if you please, to Abram to leave that place, and that he did. But he took Lot with him. Lot was Abraham's nephew, and it would seem that he chose to look after him and provide a degree of fatherly counsel to him. 
as they left that place and came into the area of Palestine, we quickly learned that God blessed richly both Abraham and Lot. Their flocks and their herds began to multiply and they became rather bountiful, so much so that the herdmen between them had strife and the herdmen between them had confrontation and contention. Abraham, you see, was not desirous of such a state of affairs, and thus he made the initiative and offered to Lot, Choose the way that you will go, and I will take the other. Lot, the text tells us in Genesis 13, lifted up his eyes and chose the well-watered plain of the Jordan River Valley. And thus he journeyed in the direction you and I would call eastward from where they then were. As Lot journeyed eastward, the text expressly says he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Sodom was yet in the distance, but at least he was dwelling in the direction toward it. But rather remarkably, we come later to find that he was then dwelling in Sodom. What maybe had started is only the recognition that Sodom was a dis city in the distance. Lot came to actually abide in the city, he and his family. This is what makes that so intriguing. In Genesis chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, it is said in words like this, The men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Sodom, you see, even at that early stage in time, was known for its wickedness. The people who inhabited there, it seemed, enjoyed the licentious, lascivious, sinful style of life. And Lot pitched his tent toward this place. As we can well appreciate, the things that befell them only thicken as the chapters roll onward. In fact, as we arrive at chapter 18, God had made decision to destroy this place. Sodom and its homosexual lifestyle would be destroyed. That was the will of the Almighty God of heaven. However, God chose to inform Abraham about his intentions of destroying this place. As he made note of that and informed Abraham, Abraham proceeded to bargain with God for the character and for the salvation, if you please, of that city of Sodom. In fact, Abraham said, suppose there's 50 righteous there, will you still destroy it? God said, I will spare it if there are 50. But then, in a bit of presumptuousness and also a note of bravery, Abraham said, suppose there's 45. God said, I'll spare it if there's 45 righteous. Abraham said, suppose there's 40 righteous. God said, I will spare it if there are 40 righteous. The bargaining continued. Abraham stated, suppose there's 30 righteous. Suppose there's 20 righteous. Suppose there is but 10 righteous. In the finality, God said, if there are 10 righteous in Sodom, I will spare it. As that chapter closes and chapter 19 opens, we learn that two angelic visitors come to Sodom, and Lot extends to them a marvelous degree of hospitality. In fact, he invites them into his house and offers to them a place that they might stay that evening. However, the men of the city are well aware that these visitors have come, and they have a desire to know them. And by know, I mean sexually know them. You see, Sodom was a city of homosexuality, and it would appear that it ran utterly rampant. As these visitors were within the safe confines, or so one might think, of Lot's house, 
the men of the city came and knocked on the door, bring out the men that we may know them. Lot said, do not so wickedly. Lot attempted to protect those that were the visitors in his house, but the men of the city would have none of it. As the mob gathered around the house and they were incessant upon them knowing the men inside, they urged Lot to bring them out. As Lot, it would seem, stood near the front of his house to try and protect them, these men were prepared to burst the door down. They were going to have what they wanted, and for as far as they thought, nothing would prohibit it. However, these angelic visitors pulled Lot back into the safety of the house and struck the mob blind, and the decree of God was about to fall on this wicked city. In fact, these angelic visitors hastened Lot and his family exit out of this place because God's going to destroy it. They lingered. It would seem longer than the angelic visitors desired, and thus, as they were hastened further, only four began the exit from that city. There was Lot, his wife, and their two daughters. Amazingly enough, even the husbands, shall we say it that way, at least those to whom the daughters were betrothed, and under Hebrew recognition of law, they were already considered married, even those sons-in-law would not leave. They stayed behind in Sodom. They refused to heed the urging of Lot and of the other members of the family. And so it was that then these angelic visitors, when Lot and his wife and the daughters came to the edge and the brow of the city, they said, escape this city, do not look back, escape to the mountains. We recognize the power of what then occurred thereafter. In verse 24 of Genesis 19, God rained fire and brimstone on that city destroyed it. As we appreciate the thoroughness of that destruction, doesn't it remind us then that the wife, Lot's wife, looked back. As she looked back, what may have prompted such? This much we know. When she looked back, she was turned into a pillar of salt, and hence ultimately only three escaped Sodom. There was Lot and there was his two daughters. Isn't it amazing that then in the light of that story, that actual biblical record, the very Son of God in Luke 17, 32 said, Remember Lot's wife. There's apparently something very significant in what she did that can serve as a very valuable and valiant lesson for us today to the extent that the Lord said, Remember Lot's wife. Having looked then at the record of Genesis 19, what befell Sodom, the urgency of remembering Lot's wife. Let's now turn our attention, if we might, to some lessons from Lot's wife. If she were able to stand before us and verbally speak, what might she say? Or better yet, given the infallible testimony of the Word of God, she in a way is declaring eternal truth to us, for the Lord declared, remember Lot's wife. Let's look at the first lesson that we might extract from this episode concerning Lot and his wife. First of all, this lesson might well appear directly. Association, you see, does not save. This is what I'd ask us to consider relative to that thought. Here was the wife of Lot. She knew a gentleman named Abraham. And he, after all, was a just and righteous man before the eyes of God. He was the initial patriarch concerning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He was the one through whom the seed of promise had come. He was the one that, in fact, ultimately would be the forbearer of the Christ. She was well acquainted with this gentleman that was declared and considered righteous before the eyes of God. In fact, hadn't it been the case that Abraham had carefully cared for Lot? Even back in chapter 14, when Lot was captured, if you will, it was Abraham that went and saved him in the battle of the kings. No doubt she often had heard her husband speak about his uncle, Abraham, and all the good things it was in his life. However, notice, knowing Abraham didn't save her, she still was turned into a pillar of salt. Not only that, consider her husband Lot. Lot, you see, was also of the genealogy of Abraham's father. He was, after all, the nephew of Abraham. And in 2 Peter 2, verse number 8, the holy text says he was declared and considered a righteous man. Lot, you see, had much to speak complimentary of him, despite the fact he made some awfully poor decisions, pitching his tent toward the city of Sodom, the character of what he did with his daughters in a drunken stupor in Genesis 19. Certainly those are not to be commended, but the text did say at one point in his life he was a righteous man. Thus, here was the wife of Lot, knowing both Abraham and Lot, and neither one saved her. That's an interesting lesson for us today still, isn't it? You and I should ever appreciate the fact that associations do not save us. You or I may be the sons or daughters of some very godly parents. On the day of judgment, that won't save us. We may be married to a godly woman, the sweetest thing that God ever placed on this earth, and yet that will not save you or me, men, on the day of judgment. Ladies, you may be married to a wonderfully godly and righteous man who loves the Word of God dearly, but on the day of judgment, that won't save you. We may be the parents of individuals that we treasure so highly, our sons and our daughters that we give our life for. No matter how godly they may be, that won't save us, parents, on the day of judgment. You see, we each can appreciate and should ever understand that our associations do not save us. It didn't save Lot's wife, and it won't save us either. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. To quote 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10. We read in Revelation twenty-two twelve, who, speaking of God, shall render to every man according to his deeds as his work shall be. In Romans 2, verse 6, we read again about the individual character of the way that God shall reward each one. Isn't that all heightened by the verse that we consider Romans 14, verse number 12? So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Our families are wonderful beyond description, aren't they? In fact, it has well been said that our families here can literally be a foretaste of heaven. And certainly we as parents should strive to make it so. As husbands and wives love each other and try to develop a family where their children are reared in a godly fashion, knowing the truth of God and appreciating it with thoroughness and power. But might we never forget that on the day of judgment our parents cannot answer for us, we can't answer for our children or even our spouse. Associations will not save us. 
Lot's wife, you see, may have thought that such would be the case. Her association with Lot, her association with Abraham, but such was not to be. And such will not be on the day of judgment, will it? But in the second place, might we note this interesting lesson. As we will remember, that commandment from the angelic visitors was to escape for thy life. Look not back, but flee to the mountains. As we read in Genesis 19, verses 12 and 13, they were expressly told, Look not behind you, flee to the mountains. Might we give some passing consideration to the first part of that command, Look not behind you. Seems a very minor command, doesn't it? What harm would there be in turning back to at least gain one last glimpse of what was my home, my place of residence? And isn't it still the case her sons-in-law were still there? Perhaps one last time, one fleeting glance at Sodom before it's consumed in the mighty fire from an angry God in heaven. Is it so terrible and so mighty to just want one last look? Perhaps this small sin will be overlooked. Maybe this matter will simply be not considered by God. After all, to look back, might I submit that that, you see, is a valiant lesson for us. God meant what He said, and He said what He meant. Don't look back, He said. It didn't matter who was still there. It didn't matter how long they'd lived there. It didn't matter what else was transpiring. God said, do not look back. It might have seemed small, and it might have seemed minor, but it wasn't because God said it. And that's all that it takes, isn't it? You see, God is not a little God, and hence there are no little sins. Any violation of His will is a mighty matter, isn't it? And it's enough to doom my soul or yours. It's enough to cost us an eternity with Him. Whatever the sacred text sets forth, it's not a minor matter, is it? Lot's wife, unfortunately, didn't seem to know that lesson prior. She, in fact, was this one who looked back. She did what she was not supposed to do. She disobeyed the very commandment that God had given. There are no small commands. Listen to some passages of the Scriptures that address that point. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 18.20 said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Ezekiel, what was that again? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. God didn't say that the sins had to be of a certain strong enough category, or perhaps enough of a valiant or mighty thing. He simply said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Ezekiel 18, verse 20, as well as Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Those things remind us still that God's Word is the infallible authority, isn't it? And every matter in it is vital. Do we not recall in Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, every word of God is tried. That means there isn't a single word of this that's unimportant or insignificant or worthy to be neglected or even overlooked. Every word of God is tried. And as we ponder that thought, might we thus consider the commandments ushered upon us in the New Testament out of the loving God of heaven. Whatever He has stated, it's for my benefit and for yours. 
It wouldn't do for me to say, well, that seems so small. Maybe God will ignore it this time. Or maybe he'll just overlook it. I'm, I'm trying the best I can do. That's a dangerous attitude, isn't it? Isn't that about something similar to what Lot's wife might have thought? She might have said, well, I've gotten this far out of the city. What harm will it do just to look one time? I'm here a safe distance from it, after all. Friend, that didn't work for her, and it won't work for us. God means what he says, doesn't he? Thus, I'm sure that if she could speak to us verbally today, she'd say, there are no little sins. Every sin is magnanimous. Every sin is huge because it's a violation of the almighty, omniscient, all-powerful God of heaven. His will is that powerful. Eternity hangs in its balance. To those who obey it, the promise of heaven. To those who either directly or presumptuously disobey it, looms the damnation of hell. May we thus learn that second lesson as well today and constantly remind ourselves, no small sins. Perhaps one other passage we might consider from the pen of the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, what then is the reward of sin? Death. What is the end result of it? What shall I reap from it? Death. Thus, there are no little sins. But perhaps a third lesson. In addition to association will not save and the fact that there are no little sins, might we also note in the third place the essence of the command must and the character of action and doing. The reason that's interesting is this. Those angelic visitors told Lot and the family, hasten out of the city, do not look back, but flee to the mountain. Lot's wife knew very well what the angelic visitors had said. She was there in the hearing of it. She knew what had been affirmed, and she knew what the Lord had, in fact, directed of them. And thus she knew, but knowledge alone wasn't enough to save her, was it? She knew, but she didn't obey. Perhaps there is a great lesson that you and I could consider concerning that rather simple thought today. In fact, there might well be in the thoughts and the memory banks of all of us, individuals that we know that have sat on the pew in a church building Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday for years, for years. How many gospel sermons have they heard? How many extensions of the invitation have they sat through? Without doubt, they know the gospel plan of salvation. Without a doubt, they know the fact that Christ died for them. They've heard it too many times, and yet they've never obeyed. Question, did the knowledge alone save Lot's wife? Did knowing what she should do, was that enough? It wasn't for her. She still, when she looked back, was turned into a pillar of salt, wasn't she? And we might ask that question today. If I come to the time of my death knowing these matters and purposefully never obeying, can I hold out hope that God will overlook my disobedience? That my knowledge alone was sufficient? That that alone will be enough to gain entrance to the beautiful place called heaven? The New Testament holds out no hope for that. None. Might we phrase it in language like this? But if judgment first come to the household of God... 
What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of the God of heaven? 1 Peter 4.17 That is to say, if the righteous scarcely be saved, what shall be the end of the others who obey not the gospel? In the words of Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed with heaven, from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. I might thus encourage each of us to ever have a heart that's tender and to respond, for our knowledge alone is not enough to save us. It's true, knowledge is vital. Knowledge is essential, but one must act upon that which one knows. Didn't Jesus teach in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24, about two scenarios, two situations. There was, after all, a wise man who built his house on a rock. That story is so familiar to us as we encourage our children to know it and to appreciate it. But this wise man that built his house on a rock, there's more in that than just a carpentry lesson. We know the wisdom of making sure the foundation of a house is sufficient. But according to verse 24, who does the wise man represent? Jesus said that wise man represents one who hears the word of God and does it. So to be wise and to found on the strength of a foundation, Jesus said to be wise, we must be those that hear the word of God and do it. What's the significance of the foolish man? Again, there's more than a lesson just in poor carpentry. We know he built his house on an on a shakable foundation. The winds blew against it, the rains came, and that house fell. Great was the fall of it, we're told. It wasn't founded on a rock, it was founded on looseness, things like sand. But again, the question, what did the foolish man represent? Jesus said, that foolish man represents one who hears, but does not. He heard, he knew, he was aware of, but didn't implement that which he knew. Thus, might we notice in this third lesson, just as Lot's wife illustrates, may we not but simply be those who hear, but be those who both hear and do. For Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. We furthermore appreciate that necessity as it's set forth in so many passages, not the least of which may be that text in James 1, verse 22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Thus, to hear is encouraged. May we never make a mistake about that. But may we implement and do and put into action that which we hear. Lot's wife teaches us this lesson. But then there's a fourth lesson. And this final lesson of our lesson time this morning, the urgency and the need for continued faithfulness. Perhaps that saga begins like this. As those angelic visitors hastened Lot and the family out of the city of Sodom, notice that she, Lot's wife, began to leave. In fact, she had made it to the outskirts of the city. And thus, she was reckoned among the saved to that point. Notice that she had escaped the actual city per se, and thus all the wickedness and all of the difficulties and all of the things against God were left behind. She had, in fact, come close to marching toward complete salvation. 
but, and it is a rather large but, isn't it? She didn't continue onward to reach full salvation in the sense of continued faithfulness. She heard enough to start to leave and perhaps escape the immediate pollutions of the city, but she was again entangled and overcome by the things there and the desire, and she looked back, and thus she was turned to a pillar of salt. That reminds us also very clearly about a lesson so needful today, does it not? For isn't it true you and I can obey the gospel? Rising from that watery grave, God has assured us the sins have been forgiven. We, as long as it's a scriptural baptism, do not serve beneath the guilt of those sins. They have truly been wiped away. But at that point onward, we must continue faithful. If we look back to a world of sin and shame and become entangled again in the affairs of it, no matter what they may be, just like Lot's wife found herself perished, so too shall we. Once we and I are saved, that doesn't mean we're always saved. There's the urgency of continued faithfulness. We read in Revelation 2.10, Be thou faithful until death, unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. To that city, that ancient city of Smyrna, to that congregation, again, the Lord said, Tribulation is about to come. Ten days worth of it, figuratively. Meaning that it wasn't to last extraordinarily lengthily, but it would be mighty. It would be oppressive. It would be difficult. It would challenge their faith to the boots. God said, you be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. They couldn't wilt beneath the oppressive pressure of the persecution. They couldn't give up the character of the faithfulness of their faith and expect to receive that crown of life. Its reception was conditioned upon faithfulness till death. Our life in Christ must, again, be of that very framework, mustn't it? To believe that we can live on past faithfulness? Well, God, I was faithful back in 1999. God, I served you wonderfully back in 1987. God could well say, what about since then? In what way have you been a faithful servant of mine in 2009? What about 2008 and 2007? You see, Christianity demands our present efforts, doesn't it? The past, though we certainly can appreciate what God has allowed us to do in the past, He asks us to live in the present as faithful and to look forward to future faithfulness if He spares our life and if He spares this world. These matters concerning Lot's wife then are as needful and as important for us to appreciate today, aren't they? You see, no wonder the Lord said, remember Lot's wife. In light of this very last of these four lessons, Peter warned very clearly, didn't he, about the possibility of being overcome and entangled again in the pollutions and entanglements of the world. And his language was rather clear. He said the latter end is worse than the beginning. So if they were lost at the beginning, what does that say about their present state? Those who have turned back to a world of sin and shame and who have forgotten their faithfulness with God. That warning is sufficient as to bring us to the conclusion in our lesson. And might we summarize it in language like this. We have attempted to remember Lot's wife, and these four lessons have taken us along roadways like this. Associations do not save. We furthermore learn there is no small sin. 
we reminded ourselves of the need to do that which God has said, not just to know it. And finally, we've been reminded yet again of the need for continued faithfulness. Friend, don't look back to a world of sin and shame. She looked back and was turned to a pillar of salt. May we each remember Lot's wife. Today, if you've never left the city of Sodom in a figurative sense, if you've never become a Christian, why not today? You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His sweet name as the Savior, and be baptized. If you have done that, but have lost the attitude of faithfulness, like Lot's wife, you've looked back. The world and its enticements and the character of sin and its pleasure has engulfed you, and you have begun to live in it. Turn aside from that today. You can do what Lot's wife couldn't. You see, Jesus invites you to come back. He has asserted that brethren can pray with you and for you, and those sins can be forgiven. You can again be faithful. Lot's wife didn't have that second chance, but you do. If we can assist you today in the act of your confession and baptism or in your rededication to the Master, won't you let that be known while together we stand and while we sing?